This is On Script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on Scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. I'm actually, if you need to know, I'm swinging a baseball bat in my study. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch, your host for this episode. I'm joined today with Dr. Peter Enns, Professor of Biblical Studies at Eastern University in Philadelphia, which is not too far from where I grew up. I grew up about an hour north of there. Uh, Pete, Pete blogs regularly at PeteEnns.com and is the author of numerous books, including The Bible Tells Me So, The Evolution of Adam, Inspiration and Incarnation, and just recently, The Sin of Certainty. Why God Desires Our Trust More Than Our Correct Beliefs, published by HarperCollins, 2016. Pete, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Glad to be here. Pete, I've been I've been tracking your your work, n- not stalking, but tracking your work. Yeah, um, well, the difference, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, there is. Let's <laughs> establish that up front. Um, I've been tracking your work for probably, I don't know, going back like two or three blog sites. I can't remember which <laughs> you were on at the time, but... <laughs> But I, I was there when IBR, Institute for Biblical Research, gave out your book, Inspiration and Incarnation, back in, uh, I don't know what year that was. Probably 2000. It came out in summer of 2005, so that would have been that fall, fall of 2005, yeah. Okay. Um, so You were there? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was at oh, SBL okay. that year. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I got my free copy, which was great. And uh, not that I wouldn't pay for it. It was a good book. One of the things that struck me about your work is is a kind of profound concern to get evangelicals and and really all Christians to look honestly at the Bible that we actually have, and as and as you put it, observe how the Bible behaves. So so why do you think? Just by way of introduction to yourself, why do you th- why have you felt for a while that evangelicals in particular, but really anyone, needs to to hear that how the Bible behaves? Uh, why? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in a nutshell, I'd say that um, if you don't, you're setting yourself up for unnecessary problems with faith. I mean, there are enough problems with faith. You know, there are enough challenges without setting up uh, um, a challenge of of having a Bible that isn't actually there. That's more a figment of our own thinking than, you know, what we find. So, you know, letting the Bible behave is a... Um, I think, you know, wonderful entry point into thinking about and communing with God and thinking about the things of God um, that is, you know, out of our control. You know, that isn't the way we might have written the Bible, but just letting it be what it is. Um, and I think that also breaks down barriers. Uh, I mean, maybe that's too strong a way of putting it, but I think it um, it can encourage conversations between people of faith and maybe people of of less faith, uh, a dying faith or a dead faith, um, who are looking at the same Bible and can at least agree on you know basic approaches about what's there and what's not there, and um, yeah, I mean I know a lot of people like that, so that's sort of that's that's on my mind too. Yeah. So for a lo- for a lot of people, they might you know they might look at your emphasis on you know trying to get people to attend to the Bible that we actually have and, and say you know. Pete, I, I read the Bible all the time. I'm in a small group, and we study it regularly. So, so why why are you saying this to people that are in contexts where they're in regular contact with the Bible? What? Wh- why are you making such a, a big deal of that? 
Uh, you know, that's a, a very good question, and I've thought about that, and it's probably my reasons have morphed um, over the years, I guess. Um, I think one, maybe early on, uh, it might have been more just a reaction on my part to feeling like, you know, I need to sort of get real with some things, and I want to let people know what I'm doing in the process that I'm going through. Um, and I think that's more morphed into um, not so much changing what people think, because I really can't do that, but more holding out a model for people who, when they're ready to think about things, when they want to think about things, when, um, you know, challenges cross their path, so to speak, there's a voice that they can be in conversation with that's, you know, thinking about these things as well. Um but yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of Christians in the world, right? And they look at the Bible in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, on one level, none of that bothers me. One look, you know, we're not going to change the world here. But, um, you know, in my my experiences and, uh, you know, the path that I've walked over the past uh, few years um, leads me to draw certain conclusions about, you know, the nature of the Christian faith and how to read the Bible. And I want to put that out there. And, and there are people who, I mean, are attracted to it and want to be in conversation about it, and others who don't. And, you know, that's fine. Hmm. Yeah, so you, you talked about the fact that some people, you know, they're, they're ready to start that process. So I'd imagine that, you know, running a, a pretty popular blog, you, you, you're in regular contact with people who are going through that process of engaging Scripture in a new way. And... Um, you know, it seems like one of the reasons maybe people are hesitant to to begin to think about Scripture differently is because they're, they're not just intellectual reasons. They've got institutional concerns, course, yeah. family concerns, you know, that it, for, for a lot of reasons it might, to engage the Bible in a new way might put at risk their socioeconomic stability, you know, if they do sure. that. Is that kind of what you observed? Yeah, definitely. Um and, and again, you know, what I tell them is that that's okay. You know, I, I think people have to make decisions like that all the time. And, um, you know, people who, let's say, listen more to that, what you call the socioeconomic side of things, they're not cowards necessarily. You know, they might be very brave and willing to put up with um, a lot of cognitive dissonance, but for a, a different good. For maybe a, for, from their point of view, a greater good. So I mean, I get that, you know. Um, and uh, you know, for me though, it's it's you know, I'm, I'm just a different person. My personality type is such that you know, I just feel like I want to put things out there. Um, and you know, it did cost me a bit, um, you know, with uh, with with the job, and and that happens. Uh, you know, my family. You know, I haven't. I haven't lost family members over it, you know, so I don't have that kind of pressure that I know some people do. I mean, I talk to people like, you know, my wife or my husband, they're just not there. And, you know, the church we're at, our kids are in Sunday school and they have friends and they're happy. And, you know, I can't stand the preaching and it's too long and this and that, but what should I do? And I, you know, I told them you have to do what you, what you feel you need to do, but, um, you know, any decision you make is going to have a downside. And just pick which one is is uh, you know less of a downside, <laughs> and go with that. And but I respect that you know there there are all sorts of reasons for um, making decisions, and you know family is a big one. Um, you know I can't lose my job 
over, you know, being a maverick. I get it. You know, they're they're not weak or cowardly people. They're they're they and, and like I said, they're in a, in a true respect being somewhat courageous at that point because they know they want to do something, but they're gutting it out and saying, "I can't, not now." Now, sometimes we bow to fear, but we all do that. You know, to, regardless of where you end up, you know, on that spectrum um, of theology, you know, we we're always battling that that demon, and um, you know, that, that comes in all shapes and sizes and all forms at all ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So, so when you when you first wrote, um, going back to 2005, and you wrote Inspiration and in- Incarnation, did you did you feel like you were taking a risk in writing that book? Not at all. No, I mean, when I wrote it, no, I, it, that's just that I. You know, when I started writing it, um, it came out in 2005. I completed it in 2004, right? It takes about a year for books to come out. Um, And I probably started writing in 2001, 2002. And by that point, you know, I had been teaching this at at Westminster Seminary for about 10 years. And, you know, with, you know, little to no um, uh, pushback, I mean, very little to no pushback. Um, It was more part of a conversation uh, but, you know, a lot of things changed at Westminster. But basically, from the time I began the book to the time I ended the book, we had a new president. Um, we had, uh, you know, a, a significant uh, um, change in, in faculty and administrative composition. So what began as something that would have been, let's say, um, a typically edgy thing for me to do <laughs> at a school like that. I mean, it wasn't mainstream at Westminster. It was edgy, but it was acceptable edgy. It went from being acceptable edgy to being, you know, heterodoxy. And, um, uh, yeah, so that's – and the thing is, would I have written it? See, this is getting back to your earlier question. Would I have written this book had I known what was going to happen? I don't know. But I'm glad I didn't know. You know, I'm glad I wrote it. So Yeah, yeah and that's – you know – Thinking about, um, I think Ray Dillard was a colleague of yours there, wasn't he? Was, oh, he was, wasn't a colleague. He was a professor of mine. He professor, actually, okay. he died, and I took his place, so to speak, on the faculty uh, a year later. So, yeah. Okay, because I remember when I was writing my uh, doctoral dissertation in Chronicles, and I, I was reading, mm. I was reading his commentary, and and just thinking, like, yeah, yeah, something has has shifted there because he. You know, he's dealing with a book like Chronicles, which it's really hard to engage in that book really closely and maintain a certain view on the nature of Scripture. Right. And right. Um, and just considering your your experience um, at Westminster as well. And, you know, the reason I mentioned that Institute for Biblical Research reception was it seemed like at that time that book was put forth as a kind of model evangelical book. I mean, this is like – is maybe that's not what was meant to be communicated um let's talk about sin and certainty um which um uh, just so our listeners know it's available you might want to get out a pen for this it's available at amazon.com uh that that's amazon.com in case you've and, never heard of it yep, yeah it's on a, a w, i think i think that's www.amazon.com it's a but, small company it's a startup you know yep, they yep. hope they do well yeah you know, they're, they're, they're promising well. yep yeah. um as long as they treat their workers well, they'll they'll do well. Um, so, what would you say is the big idea that you're trying to communicate in in the sin of certainty that you felt wasn't fully addressed, maybe in your other books or? Yeah, uh, the the big idea is that you know we don't we're not always certain in the path of faith, and when we're not certain, it's actually okay. In fact. Um, Becoming, you know, very uncertain and, and just doubting even basic things of our faith that we always took for granted, 
those are moments that can actually move us towards, I, I feel, greater spiritual depth and maturity because we may be letting go not of – we're not losing God so much as we are losing the ideas of God that we shape in our heads that are always, you know, a two-edged sword. They're, they are our conceptions and they're ways by which we commune with God, but they're also always falling short. And the temptation – which is not temptation, the fact, the universal fact that we um, tend to make God our own image. You know, we all do that. Um, and I think these moments of doubt is when we're sort of being scrubbed clean of these pictures of God that we fashion in our minds and moving to something else. But that's a painful process. That's not an easy process. And so, um, you know, that's that's the the sin of certainty. It's not that it's it's always a sin to feel certain. But when you're not feeling certain, the sin of certainty is when we are preoccupied with getting that old certainty back at all costs and defending our old ways and maybe becoming a bit belligerent about it or fearful about it or testy about it um, and essentially living in fear of like, my goodness, if I don't have that strong faith, that strong certainty that I used to have, I have weak faith. And um, I, I think that's that's really detrimental to a full spiritual life. I think we have to relax a little bit in those periods where we simply don't know or we're not certain. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that uh, it's yeah, it's not so much the, the fact of certainty, but the need to have certainty to have a robust faith. And right. I, I found that really helpful because I think a lot of people equate us certainty and as you talked about in the book, knowing what you believe with a strong faith, because we talk about people that way too. Like that's someone who really knows what they believe, and therefore are confident in a model of faith. So, right. so you don't see it that way, though, do you? Uh, no. Um, I fact, in fact, I think that you know a strong faith like that can be deconstructed pretty quickly through you know life experiences if we're paying attention. Uh, it can be big things like. Um, you know, cataclysmic, uh, you know, uh, untimely death of a child can can really, really rock people's faith. I mean, not everyone's, but 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 some people, many people, or it could just be everyday things. Just you know, meeting new people um, who don't believe anything like what you believe, but they're actually wonderful. And and uh, you know, how how do you make sense of that with you know a Christian faith and these people who are maybe atheists or whatever, you know, and. And little things like just watching a movie, a documentary where it says something about the Bible that makes sense, but that's very different from what you've been taught. It can be anything. Little things just, they sneak up on you. And, you know, before you know it, this narrative that we have, that we've written, and it's hardcover, you know, and, and it, uh, you know, everything is proofread, and it's sort of this perfect narrative of our spiritual lives. All of a sudden, we start seeing problems in it, and uh, pages start falling out. And we don't always know what to do, you know. Um, and the thing is, you know, I, I uh, you know, how does that process happen? I know for me, you know, we're all different. But one thing that that happened for me, and this is a lot of what came out in the Bible tells me so. Um, it's simply the process of reading the Bible and paying attention to it, like you said before with Chronicles. That's that's one example, and that sort of deconstructs um, the kind of faith that I think many people in the West, at least are raised with, which is a faith that is filtered through this intellectual process that gives you a sense of certainty. 
And everything else has to sort of follow from that sense of certainty, which is intellectually grounded. And so when you have intellectual challenges, then, you know, ipso facto, your faith is now weak. Your faith is damaged rather than saying, well, you know, you have faith even if you don't understand, even if things are confusing, which is a matter of trusting God, which is hard to do. You know, it's not a, not the easiest thing in the world. But that's really what the aim is. It's, it's, it's trusting God regardless of where, you know, our level of knowing or certainty happens to be at the time. Bible that that challenged your previously held certainties, or at least caused you to not hold things so tightly? Yeah, I guess a few things. One is, you know, the book of Chronicles, which tells the story of Israel's history very, very differently than Samuel King's. Uh, they're not reconcilable. They're different perspectives. Um, and that sort of opened up for me, you know, the need to think of the Bible as different than what, you know, maybe I've been taught as an inerrant book of history and things like that. Um, I, I certainly, uh, the the uh, persistent, and I would even give a value judgment, excessive violence that we see um, throughout much of the Bible, mainly in the old, a bit in the new as well, um, where, you know, God's sort of default mode of handling conflicts is through extreme physical punishment, which which is very retributional. Um, and that is, you know, that's hard to uh, process. You know, um, I mean, we do have, uh, you know, the New Testament, the dominant New Testament teaching, I think, of, um, you know, God's not like that. God doesn't say kill people and take their land, you know. Uh, but, you know, that that even even portraying God like that, looks very Iron Age tribalistic. It looks like other religions of the time. And that's that's one of the real issues. It's not so much God is mean. It's like this God's no different from Molech in that respect. Or Chemosh. I mean they're they're like that. They're they're um uh the retributional tribalistic warrior gods. And uh you know processing that is is, is you know that that's one of the things in the Bible that I get talked to, you know, people ask me mostly about that. That's that seems to be number one on people's list. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, other things might be the, uh, you know, the scientific world that we take for granted and how we explain the nature of reality vis-a-vis how the Bible explains reality. And, um, you know, I'm not just talking about things like the creation stories, which I certainly am, but, um, you know, Things like, you know, storehouses in heaven holding hail. You know, I mean, things like that. Now, I mean, we look at that and say, okay, obviously they're looking, they're coming at this from an, an ancient perspective, but that's exactly the point. You start parsing that out and, and seeing that ancient perspective, we see it everywhere. And then you begin to ask, okay, what is the Bible? <laughs> What's it doing? And, and, and how, does it, how does it inform my faith? In what way does it? And that's, that's you know, 
that's the kind of stuff that, you know, once you get into some of these details, which aren't hiding, they're there, they're, they're very obvious. Um, you know, once you, once you get into that, you can't help but have questions. Then you start looking into this a bit more and you realize, well, people have been thinking about these things for a very, very long time. It's not new. We're not the people to discover the fact that God's always angry in the Bible, you know, and, and others have dealt with that in different ways. So that's, you have this conversation that's been going on in both Judaism and Christianity. That's even within the Bible itself about how to conceive of God, you know. So, so I mean, that's I, I'm, I'm going beyond your question, Matt, but it's, you know, it's it's that, it's let's say that problem, that challenge presented by Scripture itself that you sort of push through and you get to the other side and you say, oh, I have a different Bible now than I had before, and I actually like it a lot better. Now, it was a little scary there, going through that roller coaster, through that tunnel, but, you know, you come out the other side and you say, yeah, the pressure is off in a way to defend a Bible that's not there. And, and is that part of the reason you like it more? Is is that it's not neat and tidy? Or, or what is it that you, would you say, causes you to still say, given all of that, I like this Bible more? <laughs> Well, I, I think in part, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I have to really think about it to, to flesh it out. But one thing that comes to mind immediately is um, how a Bible like this puts us in a struggle with God, you know, a struggle with the beloved, so to speak, which is, again, part of the Jewish tradition of, of engaging God through Scripture, debate, disagreement, diversity. And to me, that um, what I like about that is that it's it's just it's a thicker texture. It's it's not it's not a superficial Bible. Look at this verse, and here it is. It's more like yeah, look at that verse, but then look at that one over there. And Job or Ecclesiastes that probably doesn't like what Deuteronomy is saying right now. And and what does that tell us about? If I can put it this way, what does it tell us about the spiritual quest? Right when you see that happening in the pages of the Bible itself, and it and it, that kind of a Bible frees me to say, you know, it's okay to struggle with this stuff. It's it's inscripturated that very struggle, and that's what's attractive to me. You know, it, it not not as a rule book. You know, I, I use that term a lot. Not as a rule book or a field guide to the Christian faith, but more as modeling something for us, telling telling a story, a narrative, but modeling something for us about what it means to be human encountering God. You know, someone, they may hear your argue, your discussion about the sin of certainty and say, okay, I get that we need to hold things lightly and, and not make idols out of the Bible. But when I go to Scripture, I, I hear things like from James, whoever doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for the doubter being double-minded and unstable. And then First Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that's in you. And it seems like the Bible wants you to be really confident and not wavering. And you're saying you need to hold things to to be okay with doubting and things like that. So how, how does that fit together? Well, I mean, a couple of things. I'd say, first of all, it's not the Bible says that. It's parts of the Bible say that. There are other parts of the Bible where the doubts and struggles of uh, people of God are self-evident and they're you know right in front of you including jesus himself um i wonder you know how that verse would work with jesus hanging on the cross and saying my god why have you forgotten me so they say wait a minute jesus you're doubting and wavering cut it out now you know um but i think too that you know you know the passage in peter um 
that assumes sort of an intellectual process, and I don't think that's what's happening there at all. It's a context of persecution. Same with James. Mm. And it's not so much, you know, um, there are things people need to hear in different contexts, right? So, like, if you're suffering, if if, if you're at a moment of, of, let's say, imprisonment or persecution and suffering at the hands of other people, now's not the time to kick about your your doubts, so to speak. Maybe now's the time to be strong, and that is, you know, the encouragement that's given appropriately to some people in, in, in that moment. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, to give an answer to, you know, the hope that's in you is, again, I don't think, here are the five reasons why I know God exists and why Jesus is the Son of God. Again, I, I think that the, um, the answers that you're giving or more what you embody in your life, you know, how you're staring at an axeman's axe, you know, the moment it's about to come down, you know, what, what is, what is the reason for the hope that's in you? And it's, you know, it may not be a three point outline. It may be something more just the, 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 the depth of the sincerity. And I will say certainty of your faith at that time. Right. But that doesn't describe people at all times in every moment. In fact, it may be a process, I mean, if, if I can just I mean, add this, it may be a process of maturing in faith, of going through periods of doubts and sort of cycling through these things, spiraling through to you know, a greater depth of spiritual maturity that actually prepares you for those kinds of moments, rather than just, I know my Bible and I have all the answers here and it's really superficial. I think that kind of faith gets knocked on its rear end real quick. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how much we read into that that context. It, always be prepared, and, and we hear, uh, go take an apologetics course. Exactly um, right. And yeah. and Peter's talking to a suffering church, and and not dealing with what you believe about the historical accuracy of chronicles. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you talked in the book about about your personal journey, and you know a couple things stood out to me and one of them of course was your journey of leaving Westminster and 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 the kind of disorientation that that ensued uh but then also uh this the struggle uh that your daughter was going through um mm-hmm. uh as uh, almost at the same time so how did the how did those things converge and what resulted in terms of your your faith um coming through that well in both instances you know both professionally and my family um i'd say it was several years in the making where i had to get to a point where i just relinquished control of the universe Hmm. that i can't make other people do what i would like them to do whether it's you know employers or whether it's family i can't you know i can't um control I cannot manipulate my daughter's life when she's young so that she doesn't feel anxiety so that I feel better as a result of her not having anxiety. Right. That's, I mean, it's a, I have to let go of that. And, uh, that, that was really a long process of I mean, every facet of my life, home and work were just extremely difficult. And I felt out of control and, you know, getting tight chests and things like that because I was so used to always having control or at least the illusion of control my whole life, you know, because I'm a type A German intellectual. So the whole world comes out of my head and everything filters through that. Um, but that was a process of where I had no place. I had no recourse. 
I had no place to go, no familiar place, and I had to relearn. I mean, you know, what it means to be a, a human being, in a sense, and and that's a very sacred moment too. And and realizing that I can't control God, and having you know periodic God moments in in, in those years where. I could see sort of like a flicker of light ahead of me, and that's the path I need to follow and keep going. And um, yeah, so I mean, that, that's in a nutshell. That's that's what that meant to me. And it was it was painful. I wouldn't wish either of those on anybody, but I know for me, I I of course I wouldn't know any better. But had those things not happened, I'm not sure the kind of person I'd be. You know, and I'm not blaming anybody else for that. I'm just saying I'm not sure. I mean, I like the fact that I've come through some of those things, and it's affected how I think. I'm, I'm more, I'm less stressed, you yeah. know, about a lot of things. Uh, by no means perfect. Like I said, I'm a Taipei German intellectual, <laughs> but you know, um, but better, you know. And I, I think those are lessons that I needed to learn um, to to let go of, of of familiar things in my mind, and to and I'd actually try to trust God. And say, I have no idea where this is going, but I'm just going to go along here for a while. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yes, I mean, that, that kind of, that path of letting go of, of certainties and, and um, you know, the things that you had held on to in terms of control, uh, that's sort of what you're inviting others into as well as they read read this book and probably, you know, have their analogous situation, perhaps. Right. Um, right. What about when someone says, okay, you're asking me to trust, but the the very person I don't trust is God in this. So like, it, even if we take an intellectual issue like violence in the Bible, you know, that's, that's something that someone looks at it and says, I don't like this God. So how you're, you're asking me then to trust him on what basis can I do that? So what would you say to someone who who that's when their issue is precisely with God. Well, I, I'd say that's exactly the question that has to be asked, and um, and to ask it with complete candor and honesty. You know, I believe God can handle it. Um, yeah, I think. Um, I mean, you mentioned the Bible. You know, violence, for example. Um, I. I think. I think one. One thing to think about, again, is whether that depiction of God describes God as God is or as ancient Israelites perceived God to be. And so I wouldn't sort of lock God into that image. That's my opinion. That's where I've come out on these things. Um, I, you know, Thomas Merton has this great prayer, which I reproduce in the book, about, you know, um, I'm not really sure if I believe right now. Um, but I want to believe, and I hope I hope that's enough. In fact, just wanting to want to, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's the thing. I mean, you can. I just think to say, I don't. I, God, I don't trust you right now. I wish I could. I think that's a very positive thing to say, rather than playing the religion game and saying everything's fine. I, I, um, I talk about Psalm 89 in the book, and 
um, it's the the psalm where the psalmist essentially calls God a liar and, and doesn't really resolve it because you know the promise for an unending uh, dynasty through David um, is is thwarted in the exile, and uh, the question is, well, didn't you say that this was going to happen, and and you know you were going to have this unending dynasty through David, and now we don't? You know what what gives with that? I mean, you've you've disregarded your own promise, and um, th- I mean those are the kinds of honest words that I think people need to have. You know, when people say, you know. It's probably apocryphal, but I like it, so I'm going to make believe it's true. Martin Luther, you know, before he became a Lutheran, when he was uh, still in, you know, the monastery, and um, his, his the director of his order was sort of trying to mentor him through his struggles, and and said to Martin Luther, he says, Martin, don't you love God? And Martin said, Love him. Sometimes I hate him. And I'm not telling people to go around saying that, but these, if that's what you feel. Right, you have to sort of be honest with yourself and feel like you can, like the psalmist, approach God and get right in God's face. I think I think that's a, that's a cure for some of these things. Not a cure, but that's that's a path forward because any relationship that's worth anything has to be one that can do that. You have to be honest. You have to say, "This is what I'm feeling," and God's not going to say, "I don't care about your feelings. I don't care what you're thinking right now." You might not get an answer. Maybe that's not the best thing right then and there. But you know, so I mean, that's it. it but the thing is, that I'm not. Uh, I'm taking that question very seriously because I know people who feel like God has let them down again and again and again and again and again. And you know what? I'm. I'm not sure what to tell them really. You know, other than I hope it changes. Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me that the process of disorientation, sometimes with the Bible itself, because of its bewildering diversity, tensions, all the uncertainties, can become a a catalyst for actually going back to that Bible and finding resources in it that you never knew existed before. Uh, In other words, there, there seems to be a correlation between certainty and unanimity that doesn't allow certain books to gain hearing. Uh, But then once disillusioned or dislodged, you can see the full breadth of Scripture. So you're going back to Psalm 88, Psalm 89, um, Book of Job, Book of Ecclesiastes, and all of a sudden those those books are, are not on in the corner anymore, but are right. you know right at the center of your your piety, so to speak. Right. So so I think um, I found that helpful in the book that you're. You, you talk about these um, resources that we then have in our disorientation with the Bible to then say, God, where are you? What, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so talk, yeah. talk briefly, I mean, you, you've mentioned Psalm 89. How have you found uh, Job and Ecclesiastes to also be resources? What do they offer? Well, briefly, um, Ecclesiastes, which is you know one of my favorite books, has become one of my favorite books in the Bible. This guy has nothing good to say about God. I mean, really, for the most part, throughout the entire book, um, you know, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And the implication is that God has made life crooked, and you can't make it straight. And here's why. No matter what you do, you can labor your whole life and your whole day, you can do all sorts of good things, you can do whatever, but at the end of the day, you're going to die. And everything's leveled out. So, life is meaningless. You know, life is absurd. 
because nothing you do really has any profit. No, nothing has really a payback. Everything is neutralized. Um, and, uh, you know, he goes on like that for 12 chapters, pretty much. And then at the end, you have this epilogue, you know, written by probably another hand, uh, sort of like putting um, not a spin on, on what this character Kohelet says, but more giving a conclusion. And, you know, he's praised for being wise. And listen to what he says, but also, you know, the words of the wise are like, goads, like firmly implanted nails, you know, the, the goads that a shepherd uses, a stick with a nail at the end to prod and to poke um, uh, the, the sheep, because wisdom hurts. Life can hurt, right? And and the book is acknowledging that. But, uh, you know, then at the very end of the book, um, you know, it says, you know, at the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep the, keep the commandments, keep the commands. And, uh, you know, the, the way I read that, the way I understand it, and others do too, is uh, acknowledging the fact that life doesn't make sense very often at all, even in the most fundamental way. But even when you're feeling that way, this gets back to your, to your previous question, I think, Matt, even when you're feeling that way, keep going anyway. So the, 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 the counsel at the end of the book is... You know, the ma everything has been heard. We don't need to keep talking about what Kohelet says. Now, fear God, keep the commandments, which is the very thing that Kohelet has trouble doing in the book. He doesn't really fear God. He's critiquing God. And he says, you know what? He's wise. He's got a good point. Now, keep being an Israelite anyway. <laughs> keep moving anyway. Right? Well, that's make, it's illogical. Yeah, it is illogical. It's paradoxical. It's counterintuitive. Even in the midst of that strong critique, continue being... A faithful Israelite anyway, and of course we would say today, continue following Jesus even when it doesn't make sense, even when it looks absurd. Because if you get to that point, nothing can touch you. Right? And I think that's that's a powerful statement that doesn't try to solve the problem, say, oh, here's how it's all going to work out. There is no working out. There isn't like, here's how it's all going to be made better. In fact, you know, it's just that what they're saying is, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, it's very wise, but keep going anyway. And, and Job's refusal to, um, uh, just briefly, Job's refusal to accept the common wisdom of religion that, you know, good people, good things happen to them and bad things happen to bad people. And he's challenging that and, and sticking to his guns, saying, I know the script, I know what the Bible says, so to speak, but it's not working and I refuse to um, succumb to that. Right, and at the end, he has his debate with God, and and then you know God declares you know Job as being in the right, and his friends who are spouting the standard theology, they're the ones who are wrong, right? So I think that's a, that's like a vindication of someone sticking to their guns and being honest. So so we've talked about your experience and and how we engage with those who are in a disorienting place but how how do you engage with those who are you know smack dab in the middle of the certainty phase still um where they're let's say they're a you know young earth creationist hobbyist and their faith is soaring and they're eager to share you know how carbon dating is flawed and you know they've just got this like real enthusiasm that nourishes their faith how do you how do you engage with someone like that in a kind of church context 
Yeah, I go to a different church. <laughs> um, well, you know, I I don't know because I don't know if it's up to me to like I need to engage them to change them. I think they're wrong. I think they're very, very, very wrong. I think there's tremendous harm to come from perpetuating that kind of thinking in young people, and also for you know adults when they get to you know a certain time in life when they look back and they say, what have I done? So I, th- I think there are real problems with it, but I'm not sure it's my job to sort of change them. Now, the thing, as I said earlier, um, if people on their own start sensing the, this nagging bit of cognitive dissonance in the back of their heads that's growing louder by the day, um, you know, they need to know they have a place to go to sort of express that. And I think, you know, so it's not so much of an attack. <laughs> it's more of a haven, you know, for people come to when they reach that point because again you know there's always somebody out there you disagree with you know it's like that meme on on uh, i keep seeing on facebook about a guy who's at the computer and his wife comes in and goes you know honey go to bed let's go to bed he goes i can't there's somebody wrong on the internet (laughs) right there's always somebody wrong out there there's always somebody to disagree with and you can't make your life about changing all that. See that if I did that, I'd just be backing into that same sense of control that I've been trying really, really hard to let go of. Mm-hmm. What, what? Um, I want to wrap up the discussion soon. Um, but one of the questions I had was, you know, someone might look at the the process of letting go of certainties and just feel like, you know, Pete, I I hear you that you still got your faith, but like. I, I see this as a slippery slope. If I let go of A, then B follows, and pretty soon I believe nothing. You know what? Yeah. Is, is this in fact a slippery slope, or how do we deal with that prospect? I think certainty is a slippery slope too, right? Because you know you can just sort of you know uh, immunize yourself to struggles and think that life is nice and easy, and you're going down a slippery slope just on the other side of the mountain. But I think the whole this, the whole concept of a slippery slope rests on that the dominant model of much of Christianity, at least in the West, of an intellectual model of the faith, and that's the very thing that I think we need to not eliminate, but tame, and and keep as an aspect of our spiritual lives. Because sometimes you believe when it doesn't make sense, because you believe for all sorts of reasons. We see we don't just believe because things are logically coherent. We believe for a lot of different reasons. Some of it is intuitive. Some of it is the community that we're a part of. Some of it is our experiences. All those things. See, that's why, like the, you know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral or the Episcopalian three-legged stool. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. That let's say our theological knowledge, if we can put it that way. it's a combination of things in our lives. It's our ability to reason, right? That's a part of it, but that's not the only thing. And so, you know, I would just sort of challenge the whole metaphor of the slippery slope as they're using it because it privileges a model of the Christian faith that I think should be called into question. I think you're right that absolutist thinking has its own kind of danger, uh, it can be like a, a metal that doesn't bend but snaps under pressure. Um, I think that the challenge is simply that rigidity can look like strength from the outside looking in. So just to um, 
transition quickly because we're about out of time. You've mentioned here the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and I think one of the things from that quadrilateral that you brought in, namely experience, was the idea of God moments. What I what I really liked was that you you had a, a pr- very profound and personal experience where something extraordinary happened, and you you didn't disengage your mind so so that you could experience it. You, you let you said I knew all the counter arguments to 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 sort of explain away what happened, but yet there was something transrational that occurred for you. And I just felt like that offered a third way between anti-intellectualism that says you got to just experience um, or intellectualism that that just says, well, there are logical explanations for those very rational reasons that that you can understand. But you've you've got this third category of transrational that that really, I think, provides a, a nice and helpful way of understanding God moments um, in our lives. Yeah, rather than explaining everything through our minds, because I just don't think that's the most reliable way to get a hold of us. <laughs> I mean, our minds are as crazy as any other part of us. And um, I do I do think there is something to a contemplative experience of God. I mean, I'm, n- I'm not a contemplative Christian. I don't have the right to earn that title because I know people who are and their spiritual habits are very different than mine. But the idea that I've, I've 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 sort of been on the periphery looking in and saying there's something there that's very attractive because it acknowledges the life of the mind, but it doesn't allow that to dominate the Christian experience. It's a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. And I think that's in a way that's you know that that is a way of getting at the sin of certainty. You know, that's an intellectual process. Yeah. Well, Pete, this has been uh, very enjoyable, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk um, out of your busy schedule. I appreciate it. Yes, it's been fun to be here, Matt. Thanks. So we've been talking with Pete Enns about his book, The Sin of Certainty, by HarperCollins, uh, published this year. There's a link on our website, onscript.study, so go check it out, and I'm certain you'll find it helpful. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to OnScript. Conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our website, onscript.study.